Didn't even need to read that part of the Bible. I just thought it'd be fun. No, we are going to look at it. Uh, as surprising as it may seem to some of you, this is actually God's word to us, and it's, it's a good and helpful word. We'll see how in a sec. But before we do that, I want to know, what's the dumbest thing you've ever done? Think about it for a sec. There's probably a few contenders, isn't there? Because if you're honest, I bet you can think of multiple dumb things that you've done in your life. Things that, as soon as you made the decision, you just immediately regretted it. Or, you know, maybe decisions that haunted you for weeks and months, maybe even years. We've all done some pretty dumb things. I've done some pretty dumb things in my life. When I was seven years old, I dared my mates that I could ride down the BMX track near my house without holding on to the handlebars. So much regret. When I was a little bit older, I agreed to do the running of the bulls in Spain with my mates. I've done dumb things. But you see, these things are just trivial things, aren't they? Because sometimes our foolish decisions actually do far more damage. They break relationships, or they destroy lives, or they even destroy the lives of others. Well, friends, this morning we're considering a passage in the Bible that has been included because of one man's dumb decision. And while lots of this story is going to seem foreign and irrelevant, my hope this morning is to show you that Lot's story is actually our story. And when we see that, we'll see the way that God treats people who make foolish decisions like we do. And he treats us better than you'd expect. So we're going to pray, ask that God would help us understand this somewhat confusing and Well, a mouthful of a passage. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it is useful for teaching, rebuking, training. But Lord, we see passages like this and sometimes we don't know what to do with them. So Lord, please, by your Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see what you would have us see. Show us your grace in this part of Genesis. Lead us to the cross where we see your son, suffering in our place, out of love for us. Open our eyes this morning, we pray, Lord. Amen. All right, keep your Bibles open. But if you're looking at Genesis chapter 14, the the very first part, those kind of first nine verses, they're, they're strange. They sort of, they really stand out in the flow of the book of Genesis. Because it involves kings that have not been mentioned and we've never heard of them. We don't hear much about them anywhere else. It involves places that we've not heard much about. And the actual content of these verses, it's chaotic. It's violent. It's difficult to see what any of it actually has to do with the rest of the book. What it has to do with Abram's story. Now, of course, in a moment we're going to see how this battle of kings impacts Abram. But before we do that, there's something that we need to understand. Because to understand this passage, we first need to know that life in the Old Testament is all about location, location, location. You see, in the Old Testament, there are only ever two kinds of places. There is the place where God is, and there is everywhere else. And you've got to understand, when you're reading the Old Testament, you could be on the beach, you could be in the snow, you could be up a mountain doesn't matter. All of that is irrelevant. You're either in God's place or you're not. There are two places that matter. And the place where God is, is the good place. 
It's the place where life is beautiful, where you are provided for, where you are cared for, where you are in right relationship with God and where you sit under his rule, where you let God be king. But the moment you step out of that place, you step out of God's care. You step out of God's love. You step out of God's rule. And the distinction between these two kinds of places is right throughout the Old Testament. We see it right at the very beginning in the story of Adam and Eve, don't we? The Genesis account of Adam and Eve, it's all crafted to show you the Garden of Eden is God's place. It's the place where God walks with his creatures. It's the place where life is good. But when Adam and Eve rebel against God, what happens? They don't just get cursed. They have to leave God's place. They have to live outside the garden. And outside the garden is where bad things happen. Outside the garden is where brothers kill each other. Outside the garden is where the wickedness of people becomes so great that God decides to send a flood to judge, to destroy his creation. So when the Garden of Eden is destroyed, well, God establishes a new garden. And he promises to give it to Abram and his descendants. And the new garden is like the first garden. It's a land of blessing, a land of peace. It's the place where God will be with his people, where he will care for them and love them and protect them. And so right now, in where we are in the story of Genesis, Abram is living in God's place. God said to him, I'm going to give you this land, the land of Canaan. It's a... Uh, the bit in oh, green doesn't show up very well on the screen, does it? But it's down there on the eastern edge of the Mediterranean there. Uh, God said, this is going to be your land. This is the promised land. Abram is there. But in verses 1 to 9, we don't see anything about Abram, do we? Everything that we read in verses 1 to 9 is happening outside the land. The four kings, they're from the area to the northeast of Canaan, all kind of up there. They're from places like Babylon and Assyria. And if you know your Old Testament, you'll know that these are from the kinds of places, these are the nations that will become enemies of God's people. Now, the five kings, they're from the southeast of Canaan. That's where we find Sodom and Gomorrah and other places that throughout the Old Testament will become notorious for being wicked, for leading God's people astray. And so in Genesis chapter 14, we have Abram all tucked away, nice and safe in God's place. While all around him, there is chaos, there is violence, there is kings attacking each other, trying to exert their dominance. Inside the land, there is blessing, there is peace, but outside there is curse and violence. Inside the land, God rules with perfect justice. Outside the land, you've got kings all fighting each other. And all of this is here to show us that Lot, Abraham's nephew, has made a really, really dumb decision. Because we met Lot a few weeks ago, but when God called Abram to move to Canaan, Lot went with him. Lot was Abram's nephew. They had a close relationship. They, they went together. Lot was with Abram in the good place. But last week we saw Abram and Lot part ways, didn't we? 
And Abram gave Lot the choice. He said, you go right, I'll go left. You go left, I'll go right. And in chapter 13, last week, it says, Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan, the blue place, towards Zoar, was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. And just at the end of that passage, it adds, Now the people of Sodom were wicked. All were sinning greatly against the Lord. You see, here's the thing. Lot was living in God's place, living under God's rule, living under God's love and care and protection. He was with Abram. But when Abram gave him the choice, Lot's eyes lit up at the wealth that he could gain to the land to the southeast of Canaan. See, it looked like a good land to him. It looked like a garden of Eden. It was enticing. But of course, it was a dreadful mistake. Because choosing to leave God's land is like a kid packing their bags and storming out of the family home. You see, if your kid does that to you, they're not just looking for something else. They're rejecting you. They're saying, I don't want to live in your house anymore. This is what Lot is doing. He's rejecting God. He's rejecting God's provision, rejecting God's rule. And what's more, he goes to live near Sodom which we're told in chapter 13 was a wicked city full of people who were opposed to God and sinning greatly against God. So by the time we get to chapter 14, we see Lot is no longer just living near Sodom. He's living in Sodom. He's moved in. He's become one of them. He's turned to them. He's joined them in their wickedness. And as he joins them in their sin, well, he joins them in their suffering because he and all his family and all his possessions are carried off by an invading army. Now, what do we learn from that? So we no longer live in a time where God's place is defined by geographical boundaries. Since Jesus came, he invites everyone from all nations, from all lands to be in relationship with God. See, people can live under God's rule in Israel. They can live under God's rule here in Australia. It's all the same. But while the physical limitations have lifted, the principles remain the same. Life outside God's rule is chaotic. It's violent. It's miserable. And yet, just like Lot did, we've all chosen to step out of that rule. We've all been the angry kids screaming at our Heavenly Father saying, I don't want to live in your house anymore. You see, God has graciously offered us, every single person, He's offered all of us a life of blessing, a life of joy, a life of peace, a life in right relationship with Him. He said, let me be your God, love me, trust me. And without exception, every single one of us goes the same way that Lot goes. We've all been captivated by a different path. Our eyes have been drawn to a life of freedom, a life of wealth, a life of comfort, whatever it is. But we've abandoned God's rule, thinking that we're actually gaining something better. In the end, we lose it all. 
here's the point for us. At every point in your life, you're faced with a decision. Every point. Will you live God's way or will you go your own way? Every little decision actually ultimately amounts to that. Every point in your life, will you live God's way or will you go your own way? And at every single point, you will instinctively go your own way. I do it. We all do it. We do exactly what Lot did. And the thing is, we don't think about it. We just follow our desires, don't we? Where there is money, we follow. Where there is comfort, we follow. Where there is pleasure, we follow. Where there is power, we follow. And you see, none of us actually have the presence of mind to, or the strength or the will to actually choose to live God's way. We're, we're, we're unable to resist the temptation to abandon God's rule. We are held captive by sin. We just can't help ourselves. We can't overcome it, even if we wanted to. And you see, the thing is, the thing that Lot needed is the same thing that we need. We need a redeemer. We actually need someone else to rescue us. And so in verse 13 to 16, God's chosen man enters the action. We haven't heard much about uh, Abram in this chapter, but in verse 13, he appears. He leaves his place of safety. He leaves the promised land, the land of Canaan, and he sets out in pursuit of the one that he loves. He gathers every resource he has at his disposal and he hunts down Lot's captors. He pursues them from the very south of Canaan right up to the north. He is relentless. He stops at nothing. He risks his own life to save his nephew. And he returns victorious. He returns with Lot, with Lot's possessions, with Lot's family. He restores Lot completely. It's a great story, but it's actually here to point us to a better one. Because just as we have all been like Lot in our temptation and in our fall, we've also been just like Lot in being on the receiving end of a relentless and victorious Redeemer. You see, just like Lot, we've all rejected God's rule. We've all made that foolish decision of stepping out of God's place. And we've all suffered the consequences of that. To varying extents. We all need God himself to intervene and intervene he did. Because just as in Lot's case, for us, God's chosen man entered the scene. He left his place of safety on the throne in heaven and he set out in pursuit of the ones he loves. He gathered every resource he had, which is every resource there is. And he hunted down our captor. He was relentless. He stopped at nothing. He risked his own life to save yours. And friends, he reigns victorious. Friends, with all the energy and intensity and determination that Abram pursued his nephew Lot, friends, Jesus pursued you. He stopped at nothing to bring you back. Even though we made the terrible choice of stepping out of God's rule, of rejecting God, Jesus made the wonderful choice of bringing you back. And so, friends, while Genesis 
14, uh, in Genesis 14, the hero of the story is Abram. It's actually here to direct our attention to a better hero. And we see that in the last few verses of the chapter. They're a bit obscure. But after returning from battle, Abram meets two kings. One is the king of Sodom. That's the wicked city where, where Lot lived. The other is Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Now, he's not mentioned up until this point. The first time we meet him, it's the last time we meet him. We know very little about him, but what we do know is this. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. That's what the name means. So he's the king of righteousness. He's also the king of Salem. And Salem means peace. Salem would later be called Jerusalem. It's in the land of Canaan. So he's the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. He's the king of Jerusalem. He's also a priest of God. You see, Abram wasn't the only one who knew the one true God. Melchizedek was a priest and a king. So here you have these two kings coming to honour Abram. Abram's returned from victory. They come to honour him. You've got the king of Sodom, the king of the unrighteous. And he turns, oh, sorry, he tries to offer Abram a reward. And Abram says, no, nah, I don't want anything to do with you. The king of Sodom tries to give Abram all the spoils of war. And Abram says, no, nah, don't want it. The king of Salem, on the other hand, he rewards Abram. But in reply, Abram rewards him. You see, Abram gives Melchizedek a tenth of all the plunder, which was a king's share from a battle. So in effect, Abram is saying to Melchizedek, you are the true king. Abram was the one who led the troops to victory, but he's saying, no, Melchizedek, you're in charge. You're the king. It's a strange little story because Melchizedek wasn't even mentioned in one of, he wasn't in the battle. But it's hugely significant because it points us towards the one who will be the true king. You see, there are so many parallels here that the writer of Hebrews picks them up and says, Jesus is the priest king in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is the true king of righteousness, Melchizedek. He is the true king of peace. He is the true king of Jerusalem, God's city. He is the priest king. He's the one whose body is broken and whose blood is spilled for the redemption of you and me. Now, friends, I asked you at the beginning, what's the dumbest thing you've ever done? But I didn't need to ask you because I already know the answer. Because it's the same answer for me. The dumbest thing we could ever do is step out of God's rule. The dumbest thing we could ever do is think that there is a better life outside of God's place. The dumbest thing we could ever do is leave that place, leave that care, leave that love, leave that protection, leave that relationship. And yet we're tempted to do it again and again and again. Lot did it and he was redeemed. And if it weren't for the priest who pleads before God on our behalf, the king who rules with perfect justice, the king of peace and righteousness, the one who offered up himself for our sake. If it wasn't for our Redeemer, we'd be left to suffer the consequences of our mistakes. But friends, praise God, we have a relentless, determined Redeemer. He chases you down 
You are running from him and he chases you down. He rescues you and what's more, he restores you. He restores you. In fact, he he exalts you far above where you were in the first place. He welcomes you back into the good place. Friends, that is our Redeemer. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we thank you that even in this obscure story from a long time ago with people that we don't know, that you show us your grace in the Lord Jesus. We thank you that while we were all like sheep wandering, that we had all gone astray, that we have all stepped out of your rule, out of relationship with you, that you are the relentless redeemer who pursues us, who chases us down who restores us and welcomes us back into your land. Lord, we we see this morning that there is nothing that we could do to save ourselves. At every point in in our lives, we choose to walk away. And so, Lord, we're grateful that out of your love, you do redeem us. Help us to live the life of the redeemed. May everything we do show those around us, that we are people who have been saved, not through our own efforts. Keep us from pride. Make us humble as we praise the one who saved us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.